You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rod Lott. Hey, Mike. Thanks again for having me back. Always good to have you. We're just going to be talking real briefly here. We've got an interview with Owen Gleiberman about his book, Movie Freak. But I didn't just want to go in cold, and I actually wanted to talk to somebody who has read the book, Movie Freak, because I know I didn't. I listened to it on Audible. That's cheating. It's what I have to do sometimes. Although I guess it probably is worth it to hear his voice talk about his co-binge. That probably is something I need to check into. He doesn't pull any punches when it comes to his own stuff. And that's one reason I thought the book was amazing, is that it is probably one of the more naked, not putting upon there, one of the more naked autobiographies I've ever read. Because he is not at all shy about putting himself out there, <laughs> what he likes in bed, that sort of thing. It's all there. All his flaws and, you know, he's more power to him. It's brave. No, it's very brave. I was very, I was almost a little taken aback when we got into some of that stuff and I was just like, wow, I thought this was just going to be a book about a guy that likes movies a lot and maybe talk about his days at Entertainment Weekly. But yeah, I was I was very surprised and pleasantly so that it really got into some very deep territory and some some pretty dark stuff too. Yeah, there have been several books like that lately of critics looking back on their career, but none like this. Like Richard Schickel has one called Keepers that's really good. Kenneth Turan has one that's I think it's called something like Not to Be Missed, and it's basically he looks at fifty four some odd classic films from his entire career, and I would throw Pat Boswell book in there as well, uh, Silver Screen Fiend, but this one is just, and it's the most recent, this one is on a whole other level of excellence. I think it is easily the best book I've read this year so far, and it's one I'm going to read again at some point, absolutely. I was kind of surprised when it came to, I remember Gleiberman growing up in Ann Arbor, but I had forgotten about him working at the Michigan Daily and being friends with Hugh Cohen and all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, he must have graduated. Well, he probably graduated maybe 15 years before I did, maybe a few less than that. But it was interesting to hear him talking about his days in Ann Arbor and just some of the parallels with with my days in Ann Arbor. He sounds very much like what I was like when I was going to school there. This whole thing, like he talks a lot about going to like the the list of the different film societies and trying to figure out what he was going to see on the weekend and that was totally what I did every single weekend trying to you know catch as many films as I possibly could like you go over to Angel Hall at this time and then you go over to the Modern Languages building over here or over to the Natsai Auditorium and just like crossing campus or possibly staying in one building, you know, for many, many hours as they do like a, you know, John Waters uh, triple feature or something. So it was interesting to hear just that he had been doing that same kind of stomping across the campus that I would do years later, because I don't know why I 
didn't think that he would be doing that or maybe <laughs> thinking that the days in the 70s were a little bit different when it came to the cinema societies. And here at the University of Oklahoma, my experiences was not quite the same. I think we had one film society, maybe two, but I did go on campus like you and see a lot of those old movies. I saw a lot of things that way. I probably not had not uh, been able to see until like, you know, pre-internet days. Absolutely. But uh, that, that part of the book didn't speak to me as much as you, obviously. But uh, I was able to at least relate to the alt-weekly uh, part, having spent almost a decade managing an alt-weekly here. And, uh, but, I mean, Entertainment Weekly, that's, that for me is where I first heard of Gleiberman uh, from issue one. He was an instant favorite. I know I didn't pick up the first issue of Entertainment Weekly. I remember the commercials, the TV commercials, oh, wow. where they had the Katie Lang cover and then some of the other covers and stuff. And I probably picked it up probably six months into its run. Mm-hmm. But once I did, I was hooked. I remember they ran some, because it was part of the publishing company that does People and Sports Illustrated Time, I think. Uh, they pushed... They had a heavy push, and I remember getting something in the mail that was like, hey, new magazine, and the one that I'd like absolutely been waiting for my entire life, and, you know, would you like to try six issues or eight issues for free, or maybe it was a dollar, I don't know, it was either super cheap or free, and so I was on board since issue one, and in that first issue, he reviewed Men Don't Leave, which is a movie I love. It's the only other movie that uh, the director of Risky Business ever directed uh, to this day. And I loved it. Gleiberman gave it an A, I want to say an A plus, either an A plus or an A. And uh, I was like, this guy's on my radar. Uh, He is on my level, absolutely. And his tastes, for the most part, really align with mine really well. When Entertainment Weekly started, it was the third magazine that covered movies very well. There was, of course, Movie Line and Premiere. But I have to say, Movie Line was so fucking smarmy. <laughs> and very L.A. Oh, very, very LA. LA. Especially like those, like they had that column where it was talking about people but never saying what their, what their names were. It was just like, yeah. you know, these two this couple who are obviously gay people who have married and they're just like, well, that that's Tom and Nicole, right? That's, can you just say Tom and Nicole? But, and then when they would do interviews, it was always like, Oh, before I met with Joe Pesci, I had to go to the bathroom and they had these elegant little soaps. And I'm just like, who gives a shit, man? Just get on with the fucking interview. And then Premiere just felt like it was shilling all the time. Like there, It felt like there were no bad movie reviews except for the ones that we kind of all agreed were going to be bad movies. Yeah, I still I, – I subscribed to all of those, though, all the same. I still loved them because that was really all that existed. Well, for me, Entertainment Weekly just scratched that itch so well when it came to – all those different reviews, you know, the the movies, the books, sometimes theater, the yeah. music, all that stuff. Plus, it felt like I was kind of getting insider information. Like, you know, felt like what I could read in Variety or The Hollywood Reporter. It might have been, it might not have been as immediate, but it definitely felt like a lot of that news kind of got into Entertainment Weekly. So I felt like I was very much 
in the know when it came to what movies were being made or what was being shopped around or some of these things. Well, and that's because the the seven day window, whereas you know, Movie Line premiere those were monthlies, much larger window and deadlines and. But yeah, I loved with Gleiberman's book just getting that kind of insider stuff of what the magazine was like and how many times things didn't look like they were going to go well for the magazine, why it stayed afloat, which was basically we can't let another time life saying we can't let another magazine die. So it was great to have that kind of insight on stuff. Yeah, I had no idea that it was close to death so many times. That's like, well, what magazine does succeed if it's like if it's something like this that's in every freaking supermarket, you know, what could succeed? That's a fantastic uh, insight into how a magazine like that works and just the way he interacts with employees, fellow employees and editors. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Well, let's go ahead and I'll say goodbye to you now, Rod. I know you got to run, get some ice cream. So let's uh, say adios for you. And then I'll just go ahead and play this interview with Owen Gleiberman. And I hope folks enjoy it and definitely check out Movie Freak. Do and thanks again for having me. And uh, people can find my work at flickattack.com. Not as good as Gleiberman, but hey, it's free. Very nice. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Mike. Why Movie Freak when it came out? I, I almost said Why Movie Freak now, but it's actually been a couple months since it came out. But what kind of prompted you to write your memoirs at this point in your career? Well, I thought, well, after I left Entertainment Weekly two years ago, I was casting around for what to do. Just about the first thing that popped into my head, I think I'd had a seed of this idea maybe a few years before, but I had just kind of put it way on the back shelf. I thought, not so much, hey, I want to write my memoir, but I thought, it's time for a memoir about the life of a movie critic, the life of a movie buff, the life of somebody who lives his whole life through movies. It's time to really do that and hold it up to the light and look at it. I mean, there had been a few other memoirs by film critics like Jonathan Rosenbaum's and, of course, Roger Ebert had written uh, and published Life Itself not that long before he died. That was a big book, but I considered Roger Ebert to be kind of a category all his own. He was such a celebrity that that's almost what defined him more than being a film critic. He was, he, he was the one true celebrity film critic. I had made a name in media, but I wasn't famous the way he was. So I thought this would be the memoir of an established film critic, but also just sort of a regular guy. And I thought this was a time to look at this whole phenomenon of uh, movie mania, or I suppose it might even, in a sense, include small screen mania. But, you know, those of us who, over the last 30, 40, 50 years, ever since this became a quasi-respectable thing to do, those of us who, you know, are kind of proud movie buffs who are proud to say, yeah, this is my passion, this is my obsession, this is my religion, this is the this is the art form that in certain ways is more real to me than life itself. I thought, yeah, let's take a look at that from my own point of view. Let's look at the feeling of it, the psychology of it. Let's take a deep dive into it. 
I thought, yeah, it's time for that book. And I thought I'd have a lot of fun writing it. And I did. You take us on such a journey through your life and also through kind of the uh, the history of media and everything. It was wonderful to kind of go on that trip with you from those early days in Ann Arbor all the way into New York and beyond. And just, it was uh, very, very insightful. I have to say, just a wonderful, wonderful read. Well, I really appreciate that. I really do. Because one of the things when you do a book like this, I mean, when you've been uh, a critic like myself, you know, sort of work-a-day critic, uh, first did an alternative weekly and then as a magazine, but never having written, you know, anything long form like this, is that... By definition, you kind of don't know what it's going to be. You don't know what the reaction is going to be. My intention from the beginning was to write something that would engage people. Even more than a number of other critics, I have, I mean, I don't sort of spell this out necessarily in my reviews as an ideology, but it has always been almost part of my critical sensibility, maybe my ideology that uh, I do believe works of art should be, for lack of a better word, entertaining. Uh, obviously, great movies, great works of art in any form kind of transcend that facile word of entertainment. Um, and yet, and yet the word has a place. I think that, uh, I'm a believer in, in works that really sweep you up and engage you and take you out of yourself. Um, that can be about challenging things, but that don't feel like homework to watch. Uh, that, for right or wrong, good or bad, has been the school of criticism that I've practiced. It's one of the reasons that I have had uh, less patience than some critics for certain, you know, slow-moving foreign films or whatever, films that don't provide a certain narrative satisfaction. I'm kind of a narrative junkie. So when I sat down to write my book, I said, all right, that's got to be in this book, too. If, if that's your aesthetic, you can't expect people to come along on your own life story without providing some of that. So my intention from minute one was to write an entertaining book. And I often said to people during the writing of it, I said, you know, when this book comes out, if there are uh, two people who are talking about it, either who know me or, or, or don't know me, but, you know, say something like, oh, uh, you know, I got to say I'm reading, uh, I'm reading Owen Gleiberman's book. The other person says, oh, yeah, uh, how is it? First person says, oh, it's kind of fun. That would be the highest compliment I could get. Um, now, not to be pretentiously unpretentious, I was trying to write a book that said something, that made some observations about criticism, that made some observations about media, uh, and about my own life. Uh, it's not like I had no ambition for the book at all, but I thought none of the ambitions would work, not even remotely, unless it was an engaging read. And, you know, when you're writing your own life story, it's really kind of a crapshoot. You don't know whether your own story is going to uh, be something that's compelling to people. But what I banked on was the idea that because of the history I'd lived and because of, in some ways, just the exact generation I was, for instance, seeing these drive-in movies that I talk about early on in the late 60s, uh, Rosemary's Baby and uh, The Penthouse and The Boston Strangler. Well, in some ways, these movies themselves are the fact that Hollywood was moving into adult subject matter that's old news. That's not really a big deal. But the fact that I was eight and nine years old watching these movies, that sort of begins my unique perspective on that period, even the new Hollywood. Uh, I kind of came too late to have grown up with the new Hollywood. I caught up with it in the last half of the 70s. I talk in the book about how I was kind of on the cusp between the baby boomers and Gen X, and that gave me 
a unique vantage on both. I was able to share boomer passions, all the passions of the 60s, the politics, the art, all of that. I was able to share a lot of the passions and sensibility of Gen X because in the 80s, which was kind of the heyday of Gen X, uh, I wasn't that old. You know, when John Hughes movie came out in 1984, 1985. I was in my early to mid-20s. So I could relate to a lot of the pop culture, the pop music around at the time, the same way that people in Gen X did. But I was a little bit older, so I had a little more distance on it, and I thought that gave me a unique vantage on all of these things that would just show itself in the prose of the book. Um, my own unique kind of point of view. And I guess I also felt that I had been a critic for long enough and lived long enough that by charting my career as a critic, beginning at an alternative weekly, then going to a glossy magazine, and then going through what began to be thought of as the, uh, you know, the attrition of criticism, maybe the waning of criticism, the rise of digital, all that stuff. I could kind of give a history of criticism in our era and what happened to it, what has happened to it, the changes it went through, the pressures. Uh, I, I went through and experienced all those things. So I, my, my whole idea was that by hewing just very, very closely and very honestly to my own story, I could tell the story of criticism. I have to say, I found the stuff about Pauline Kael to be absolutely fascinating, especially the influence that she had outside of just The New Yorker and how it came to so many other critics kind of adhering to her point of view. Even though I might say I identify myself in the book as someone who had become a friend of hers and was very much under her influence, but did not want to become a Paulette. Sometimes I got roped in with the Paulettes because I was a younger friend of Pauline, but I never did want to be one of those people who was simply mimicking her opinions, who, you know, if you asked me, uh, Owen, uh, what are your favorite movies? I would automatically, you know, say something like, well, of course, Casualties of War uh, by Brian De Palma is a great film. I never wanted to be one of those people. I never was. But I think a thing that united me and the Paulettes and all the people who read Pauline in The New Yorker throughout the 70s and 80s, where it begins is simply the electrifying effect that her reviews have. A lot of people who carpet Pauline will say things like, oh, well, her prose, she wrote exciting prose, but her opinions were mindless, or she went too much from the gut, or this or that, or they'll say she was wrong all the time. Well, first of all, you have a right to be wrong. I'm not even sure there is a right or wrong. She's just herself, and that's all a critic needs to be. But where it all begins is that her writing about movies electrified people on a week-to-week basis in a way that I almost can't think of another example of a critic in the 20th century who had that effect. She excited people about movies. She excited people about what she would say. Anyone who picked up The New Yorker on a given week, eager to see what Pauline's take would be on whether it was the new Louis Malle film or the new Spielberg film, you know, the second you're saying that, what you're saying is that you're investing a tremendous amount in her opinion because you find her to have enormous credibility, and I think many, many people did. Uh, she was so smart about movies. She had so much enthusiasm combined with such a great BS detector that she was completely unpredictable, and you felt that she reacted from the gut very honestly. She was almost, on some level, a kind of saint of saying just what she thought. And I think that that accounts for uh, the excitement that she 
aroused in readers. Now, one of the results of that is that she had these acolytes who became devoted to her opinions in an almost cult-like way, where she could do no wrong. And I, I, I saw through the folly of that pretty early. And my friendship with Pauline was problematic because she did want you to agree with her. It's not like you could never say that you disagreed, but when it came to her sacred cows, she wasn't going to have much patience for it. Um, and there was always a threat sort of looming that she would freeze you out if you kind of weren't on her bandwagon. And so, you know, that just became for me unpleasant after a while. It, I started to realize, well, that's not a true friendship. Um, it doesn't make Pauline a horrible person, but it makes her a certain kind of person, kind of domineering person. And in some ways, it just violated the essence of what I thought of as a movie friendship. I mean, I love to get together and talk to my friends about movies, but it's not like there's some pressure to think this or that. Uh, the essence of, to me, of criticism and of movie conversation is that it's free. You're free to think whatever you thought. That wasn't true around Pauline. So, you know, I just wasn't destined to be friends with her. I never lost my reverence for her stuff, for her writing. I mean, she was always my muse, and she's still my muse in a certain way. The way she wrote, it was so free. I say in the book that in some ways I think of her as the first blogger or one of the first bloggers. And I mean that. I think that though she worked very hard on her writing, she did do it quite spontaneously. The spirit of what we think of as good online writing was, was right there in Pauline's stuff. Once you kind of, I don't want to say you made the decision to become a critic because you almost kind of got thrust into it when you were working at the Michigan Daily, but once you kind of got into that role, I know that you're friends with like Hugh Cohen over at uh, University of Michigan. Did you embrace the whole film program that they have over there? Well, I sort of embraced it. I mean, I didn't embrace it to the degree of becoming a film major. I'm not sure why I didn't because I was an English major and didn't do much schoolwork. I was much more, in essence, I was a film major. I mean, I was, in a sense, a film major from the day I started at U of M and going to the movies, going to see uh, films at the Campus Film Societies starting in the fall of 76. When I started, you know, that became front and center, what I did. So unofficially, I was totally a film major. And I did seek out certain film courses, uh, especially by Hugh. He and I became friends. Uh, we had a sort of, you know, mentor-student relationship that then kind of slowly blossomed over time into more kind of equal relationship when I became a professional critic. Uh, but he was a major mentor to me, right along with Paulie. There was something about the way that Hugh saw movies. He was an Ingmar Bergman scholar. He had, uh, uh, you know, an appreciation for the highbrow, but also for someone like that, for someone who was uh, in academia such a transcendent appreciation for the lowbrow, a really subtle one. I mean, it's not just that he liked popcorn movies. It's not that big a deal, but he would see the depths of them. You would go to see a Sylvester Stallone movie, and I'd be talking to Hugh on the phone about it, and he'd say, he's magical in that role. And I thought, I would think, really? And he would, and he would talk about why Stallone in this particular role had a kind of hold on the audience, where there was something, you know, he talk about the power of his acting. And he would make me see, yes, he's right. It's not an, I mean, it's not like Sylvester Stallone is Marlon Brando, but it's not an accident that this actor came to have such a hold over the popular imagination. Great movie stars don't necessarily have to be great actors on that very high level of craft, although Sylvester Stallone, at his best, has tremendous craft. So he was open to all of that. He was open to 
the kind of uh, almost instinctive artistry that goes into a lot of popcorn cinema and entertainment cinema. Uh, and he, in a certain way, didn't even draw the distinction between that and art cinema. When when he saw something that excited him, that's what counted. And so he, in a different way than Pauline, showed me a way to break down those barriers. And I think that's in many ways what movies are all about. Uh, I don't really have a, a, a problem with movies that, that aim high or are very intellectual. And yet, those of us who are drawn to movies as an art form, I mean, there's a reason that we're movie buffs rather than poetry buffs. Um, it's not an art form that works from the neck up. It's a, it's an art form that really integrates the head and the heart and the body in a certain way. So I was always drawn to the, the writers and critics and thinkers about movies who were into breaking down those barriers. That was Pauline, and it was very much Hugh Cohen. You definitely don't seem to shy away in Movie Freak from you know painting yourself in uh, very much a warts and all kind of a portrait. Was there any time where you're just like, this is too much, I really have to kind of come back from this point? A lot of people have remarked about how far they thought I went in terms of revealing myself, things about my family. There's a part of me that's tempted to say, well, actually, it wasn't that hard to do because it was the tip of the iceberg. And in certain ways, it was. I mean, I could have said a lot more about my family, much of what I say about there, what a problematic family it was, in many ways, is, is meant to be suggestive. I had a very, very problematic father. I, you know, I suggest the ways that he was uh, not only an adulterer, but just sort of an angry person who wasn't really there for us. You know, that kind of character is sort of there in the popular culture. We've seen him in certain movies like The Great Santini. Uh, there's obviously a lot of people in our culture who have daddy issues. I had one of those fathers who was sort of a, a post-war father, one of those fathers from the 50s who was kind of, you know, stern and couldn't really be giving and loving to his kids. Uh, he's always felt to be very much like an individual, but he was sort of a type in that way. So, um, you know, I could have gone into, into that in, in, in more depth. But, um, yeah, my intent was always to write an honest book about myself. And I guess instinctively in terms of things I revealed about my own romantic and erotic life that seem to be very revealing, but they're not really that scandalous. I mean, we live in a culture where not only is there a profusion of memoirs, but there's a profusion of addictive addiction memoirs. It's practically a genre. I mean, it's not any great shock to go into Barnes & Noble and pick up a memoir about someone's horrible drug addiction or, you know, I was a sex addict. This kind of thing we see all the time. I talk in my book about how I have certain addictive tendencies, not nearly as extreme as any number of the people who have written some of those other books or just people out there in the culture in general. So I think what seems so honest, if I may say so, about my book is not that my addictions were so extreme, although they were there, um, or even that I was that honest about them, although I was honest. I think the particular thing is the kind of person I present myself as being. I don't sit there and say, I was a drug addict or I was a sex addict. That's the compartment in which you put me in. I say, no, I was a normal guy, kind of a dweeb with ordinary passions, and yet an ordinary person with ordinary passions can branch out into these addictive areas. In some ways, just by trying to be true to my own experience, I was trying to break down the stereotypes we have in our culture about what an addict is or what a geek is. In some ways, I wanted to portray 
the inner life of a geek, which I think is something that for all the freaks and geeks in pop culture, we've seen far too little of. And I knew that that was my life story. So I thought, why not put that out there? I don't know if I've seen that done in quite that way. And I think that's where the feeling of honesty was. It wasn't about necessarily even showing all my warts and all. It was about saying, I'm going to present them honestly. I'm going to present them without exaggerating them. I'm not going to make them, you know, more poweringly pathological than they were. I'm not going to make them less of a problem than they were. I'm going to portray them life-size. And that, to me, was the whole impulse behind doing that. I know you've undergone therapy, obviously, from your book. I know that. But was the process of writing this kind of a therapy unto itself? It was, but not in a way that I even realized till the book was done or even till it after it came out. I mean, I'm almost still realizing the therapeutic aspects of it. Uh, the most obvious way it might be therapeutic, namely when I was talking about various episodes in my family or my own life or dark episodes, you know, the very kinds of things you might talk about in a therapist's office. Did I go through a version of therapy and actually sitting in front of my laptop writing about those things? The answer to that is kind of no. One of the reasons I was able to write this book is that though writing it was, to a degree, a process of discovery, I think writing is only good if that's true, uh, I discovered things line by line as I wrote them. But a lot of these events were in the past. I had a handle on them. I had grown past them. Uh, I was writing about the point of view of being a kind of wayward single guy out there, lost in his obsessions and addictions, that kind of thing. I was writing about that from the standpoint of now being a married person with children who, you know, not to sound pious about it, but who, you know, to a degree had worked through those kinds of things. So in that sense, the therapeutic work on those kinds of issues had maybe already been done. But I found after I was done with the book that putting your whole life between two covers and bringing it out into a public forum, there is a kind of catharsis in that. Uh, maybe it's almost like, you know, getting your diploma from therapy. It really is a way of saying, of, of closing the book on something, of saying, okay, this is in the past, but it doesn't mean my life is in the past. It means all this stuff is in the past. And in a sense, that gets you to think therapeutically, if you will, about the future. It gets you to say, all right, well, that stuff doesn't define me anymore. Now what does? And what you realize is that you're into a whole new chapter that's just as vital as that, and you're living it in the moment just as you lived that. But certainly, you know, one of the, I'm still a movie critic, so I have not it's not as if I've lost the movie freak side of myself, but one of the things that I say in the book is that when I was in my 20s, 30s, even edging into my 40s, movies, I say, were a kind of voodoo for me. And I watched certain films over and over and over again, be it Natural Born Killers or Manhunter or Boogie Nights or Breaking the Waves or Full Metal Jacket. These movies had a talismanic power to me. I think my relationship to them was really religious in a sense. And that was very powerful and very healing. I knew that these movies had a force. They brought something just primal into my life that kept drawing me back to them over and over and over and over again. And I talk about how I still have incredible passion for films, but I don't have that kind of relationship to them anymore. And I think that's fine. That to me is not necessarily about the diminishment of passion, but it's about the diminishment of 
obsession. To have a different relationship to those things at a different age, I think that's fine and that's good. And in some ways, writing and finishing the book helped me realize that. It's kind of like, you know, what Gail Sheehy wrote about in that book, Pathogens, this being my own kind of private, personal version of Pathogens. It made me realize, okay, well, that was a passage I went through. That's a, that was a whole chapter in my life, a whole way of being that is now past. And so um, I think writing the book helped me do that. I was, of course, very fascinated. I've been a fan of, or was a fan of Entertainment Weekly, not since the Katie Lang cover. I probably joined up a few issues after that, but after that, I was hooked for many, many, many years. So to read the backstory of the magazine and the behind the scenes was absolutely fascinating. Well, I appreciate that. I The reason I put that stuff in there is that David Carr, the late New York Times media critic, who you know was such a fantastic writer, and uh, they have actually recently announced that they're going to take the memoir that he wrote, The Year of the Gun, about his life before he was a journalist, when he had actually become a crack addict and in Minneapolis, I think it was. And they're going to turn this into a television miniseries. Sounds like to me almost with overtones of Breaking Bad a little bit. Anyway, I think it's a, you know, it was a powerful book. It's a great idea for a series. But David Carr, back when he put out that book, somebody asked him, well, why, why did you write this book? Why did you choose to write this book about your sort of horrifying or terrifying past? And he said, well, you know, he wanted to do it. I think it was an active catharsis, an active therapy probably for him. But he also said that, you know, he pointed to a shelf in his office or something that had a, a bunch of books about media on it. And he said, you know, you see those books? None of those books sell. The only people who want to read books about media are media people. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I didn't want to write in Movie Freak the kind of navel-gazing, media-centered book only media people or former Entertainment Weekly people would want to read. But I did think that there was a certain interest in media in the culture at large. And I thought that if I made inside media's stories and a look at what goes on behind the scenes of a place like Entertainment Weekly, I thought if I made that one flavor in the book, it would be something that people were interested in. And I thought it would add to the variety of flavors. I'll tell you that the big decision I had to make in terms of dealing with all my years at Entertainment Weekly was when I first arrived there, you know, I tell the story of how I had lost my job at the Boston Phoenix in 1989. I had a kind of six-month lost weekend, and then I was rescued by the startup of Entertainment Weekly. So I moved to New York for the startup of EW, which was in February of 1990. And I talk about how in that first year of EW, there was just a lot of inherent drama, just a person like myself coming to work for the first time in New York for a glossy magazine, kind of a dream come true, but all the perils of that and, you know, getting up to speed on office politics, things like that. And I talk about stuff how I love about how I like, you know, panned the movie Pretty Woman in issue number six and got called on the carpet for it, uh, in part because the magazine was not doing well out of the gate and the executives at Time Inc. had decided that the whole problem with EW is that it was too snotty, too highbrow actually. They completely misdiagnosed the problem. That was not a problem with EW at all. But right or wrong, that's what they thought. And the fact that I had panned Pretty Woman, which went on to become such a popular and influential movie, that marked me as almost the poster boy for everything that was wrong with EW. So in some ways, 
coming out of the debacle of that review, I was quite lucky to be able to keep my job. Well, there was a whole inherent drama in that. And so when I was writing that chapter about the early days of EW, that was a lot of fun to write. Uh, that was sort of therapeutic in a kind of way. And just the whole drama of coming to the big city, all that stuff. But once I was past that, once I got into the years 1992, 93, and it looked like EW was going to make it and looked like I was going to be accepted as the critic there, then I had a decision to make. I said, well, what am I going to do now going forward in terms of writing about EW? I thought I could write about my own experience, some of the little battles I had, the turf wars, uh, the fights for doing certain movies as lead reviews, trying to talk about the tension between critics and editors at a magazine like that. And I did write about that stuff. But I also had a decision to make about, do I want to write about anything that has to do with EW outside of myself? And I decided that I did, because I thought there hasn't been a book written about EW. There have been books written about other magazines. You know, Calvin Trillin wrote a Romana Clay in the late 60s called Floater about his experience at Time magazine. There was uh, a great history of Rolling Stone magazine written in the 90s, I think it was the 90s, maybe early 2000s, I can't remember, by Robert Draper. I mean, it was literally just a whole nonfiction book that came out entirely about Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone. I had no idea how that book did. Maybe it was for inside media types anyway, but I thought it was a fascinating book. I thought, well, I'll have that element in my book. I'll tell the inside story of EW and talk about its fortunes, even some of the finances, that kind of thing. But I won't belabor it. I'll just make it kind of one arrow in my quiver, and I thought it would give Movie Freak some variety if I did that, too. It would be a little bit of, you know, getting outside of Owen Gleiberman's head a little bit. You know, it was part of the mix, and that's one of the things I wanted to do to keep the book entertaining, was to make it a mix of things, to be about my personal life, my professional life, the fortunes of this magazine, and, of course, the movies themselves. I don't know if it was necessarily shocking, but it was. I was definitely surprised when you were let go from Entertainment Weekly because you had been such an institution there for so long. You also kind of document the way that media has changed over the last 20-some years, uh, especially with the advent of the Internet. So it was very interesting to see how that played into that factor as well. I mean, you were one of the last men standing, it felt like. Well, the reason I was surprised when I was let go at Entertainment Weekly, if I can say this without sounding like I'm patting myself on the back too much, you know, I had all sorts of people say to me, oh, were you surprised because, like you said, you know, you were an institution there. But my attitude about it is that I always saw my job as kind of earning it one piece at a time, or put another way, you're only as good as your last review. I honestly believed that. That became my credo. And I think that that allowed me to do a couple of things. First of all, it, it was a way of uh, me keeping my standards up and not letting myself slip, of saying, no, I will never coast on a reputation. I will put heart and soul into every piece I write, and I do believe that that's what a journalist of any stripe owes their readers. But the other thing is that I didn't want to be the kind of person who had a reputation but was thought of in certain ways as uh, a relic. And I thought, well... Here's the way to do it. If you don't want to be a relic, don't allow yourself to become one. So the reason that I was surprised when I was let go from Entertainment Weekly is that the way I saw it from my point of view didn't matter. The only reason, the only rationale for them keeping me would be that 
I was a force of good for the magazine, for the magazine's fortunes. And I felt at the end that I still was. I felt that, if I could say, if I can throw modesty to the wind, I felt that the writing I did was still vital and that um, I was still helping their brand. And they obviously didn't feel that way. And I think that difference emerged out of the changing values of the magazine. And it really wasn't about me. It, it certainly wasn't personal because I always got along with everybody, including all the top editors. Um, it was just a belief that the kind of criticism I represented was going to have a smaller and smaller place in Entertainment Weekly, if, if indeed any kind of place at all. Uh, and I think that is kind of what's happened. There's still some very good critics who write there. The writers themselves are good. But in terms of the form of criticism that the magazine features, obviously the space has really been cut for that stuff. And when you cut space, you're saying you don't value that form that much. Only time will tell whether that's uh, a mistake on their part. You end the, the memoir in the way that you should with where you were in your life. But it's interesting when you think of the the book as a book, you end it kind of on a low note and a high note, both of what? Not having a job, basically, at the end of it, and then having a family and having these beautiful daughters and all this and how you're going to experience life with them. But obviously, the story hasn't ended. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened past when Movie Freak came out? Well, I think however you decide to end a memoir, the story hasn't ended because you're still alive and you're still living. So that's just true of any any book that's a memoir. And even though, you know, one friend of mine read the book and said, she said at the end of it, she said, oh, I thought it was really depressing or something. I think it actually has a happy ending, but I think she meant that uh, I had had a staff job at Entertainment Weekly in the way that the book ends. Uh, I don't have one. Uh, to me, that was not actually a big deal, and I'll give you the perfect example of it. I actually am a, a newly hired film critic for the last five weeks I have been uh, the chief film critic for Variety. I literally started this job just before the Cannes Film Festival. In May, my first official act as chief film critic of Variety was to go to the Cannes Film Festival and uh, sort of write a zillion reviews out of that, and that was a lot of fun. Let's say that that had happened before I finished Movie Freak. Let's say that I had uh, landed this job at Variety. I I guess it would have been perverse not to put it in there, and I would have put it in there, but it wouldn't have been a part of the story. I mean, even if I'd been on this job for uh, three or four months, uh, other than saying, hey, I have this job now, there would be nothing to say about it. Uh, there's just no, I haven't been on it long enough. There's not enough perspective. Uh, my, my experience at Variety so far, even though it's been uh, fantastic, it doesn't have any place really in a memoir. So, um, you know, I was happy to leave the book where it was. Uh, the real story there isn't about whether I had this job or not, the real story was the way that I had become a person who literally lived his life through the religion of movies. And I had, and to some extent I'm still like that, and to some extent I always will be. Uh, in fact, to a large extent I will be. It's not like, it's not like I'm past all that. But that I had moved to a degree from being that kind of person to maybe a somewhat larger soul. Someone who did get married, and have children, and just see that there are certain other dimensions to life. I mean, just putting it that way, it sounds so cliche. I can't, I can't believe it. And I wasn't trying to end it with a cliche or a happy ending. I was just trying to end it on a note of reality, just as I tried to strike a note of reality through the entire book. That, to me, was the significance of, of the ending. I had found something different than 
what the book was about. And in terms of exploring that, maybe that's maybe I have to wait till part two of Movie Freak. I do want to just add real quickly that I actually didn't read the book. I listened to it, and you had a very, very nice presentation when it came to the actual audio book of it. Thanks. You know, I have heard about authors, even authors of memoirs, who have turned down the opportunity to read their own book, and that surprised me because when Hachette, my publisher, uh, made the offer to me, in fact, it was way early on before I had barely begun writing it, uh, the idea of the audiobook came up. It was at some event at Hachette. Somebody mentioned to me, oh, do you think you'll want to read the audio uh, version of your book? And I'd never thought twice about this, but as soon as they said it, I thought, yeah, I think so. Why not? For one thing, this is, you know, the first book that I've ever written, so it seems like, yes, I would want to do that. But more than that, it's a memoir. It's all in my voice. It's me telling my story. That's a natural for me reading it. What, am I going to have Ethan Hawke read it? <laughs> you know, I thought, yes, uh, this will be a fun opportunity. And indeed, it was quite an adventure. You know, we had to uh, record it over a period of many days. It takes a long time to read a book that long. But I enjoyed doing it. It was kind of a challenge. You can't be phoning it in. You've got to be sort of delivering each sentence, delivering the thoughts. In some ways, it was a way to uh, experience the book in a new way for me to do that. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that version of the book is out there. I actually just did a uh, an event in Chicago at the Printers Row Book Festival um, with my friend Eric Zorn, who writes for the Chicago Tribune. He interviewed me on stage, but he and I are old friends. We knew each other in high school in Ann Arbor. It had been Eric's idea to do this event because he had, you know, read the movie Freak. But more to the point, he uh, he hadn't read it. He listened to the audio edition and and really liked it. I've always told I've always been told that I have a good voice for radio or maybe for podcasts. So uh, I hope that came across. But one of the things that I had to keep telling myself to do because I do have, uh, in some ways, almost an overly quick voice. I had to tell myself with this memoir when I was reading it, slow it down, slow it down. I discovered in the course of doing it, you almost can't read it too slowly. And my touchstone there was, in a funny way, all that NPR stuff, just the collective memory we all have of, you know, NPR voice or, you know, Garrison Keillor or whatever. But NPR, I mean, the, the whole glory of it, the reason it's still such a jewel in our culture is that uh, NPR is about many things, many great forms, many forms of information. But on some level, radio being kind of an old form, uh, I think NPR, for so many of its listeners, is about a way to slow yourself down a little bit in this insane media age. And uh, I told myself my book should, the reading of my book should be like that too. It should be uh, a little more meditative. So anyway, that kind of tickles me to hear that you, uh, that you experienced the book that way and liked it. Thank you. Well, you know, if this whole movie critic thing doesn't work out, you can always do voiceovers. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> late, very late career switch. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Gleiberman. This has been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thanks, Mike. I enjoyed it. 